Well, please take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 5, and then stand with me for God's Word. We're going to read verses 17 through 20. It's in the context of Jesus saying that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and let our light shine so that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That is the context in which he says these words, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken and you have spoken truth that we need. And this, this truth is found in your word, the very word of God. We thank you, Lord, that we can read it this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times have you heard someone say, the New Testament superseded the Old Testament? Or the Old Testament's obsolete? Or it doesn't apply to us anymore. You some accept that as fact. But how did Jesus see it? Many have misunderstood Jesus' attitude toward the scriptures. The second century heretic Marcion rewrote the entire New Testament, taking out every reference to the Old Testament, including Matthew 5.17. His followers took it even further. They rewrote Matthew 5.17 to say, I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. They twisted God's word. Many today think that the law was abolished for Christians, that they are no longer bound to it. That the law of love is the only absolute command that now exists. But if you want to know what Jesus' attitude was toward the Old Testament, look no further than Matthew 5.17. It's no secret where Jesus stood with regard to the Scripture. Now, it should come as no surprise that the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, held held the written Word of God in highest regard. Jesus acknowledged the preeminence, the permanence, the profitability, and the power of God's Word. Now, at the beginning of this year, I challenged us to do something that sounded strange to some. I challenged us to read through the Sermon on the Mount, not once, not twice, but over and over again throughout the year. In fact, that's why our bookmarks that you can use alone or with your household or with a a small group, that's why every week you're either reading Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, or Matthew chapter 7. Now, there's nothing stopping you from reading the whole thing every week, or every day for that matter. 
It doesn't really take that long. But why would I ask such a thing? Because I want us to saturate ourselves and our families and our households and this church with the Word of God. With the Word of God because it is preeminent. It is permanent. It is profitable. And it is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says that it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is able to judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's something to the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 says that God's word does its work in those who believe. So today I want to highlight several observations relating to Jesus' view of Scripture. Now, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says two things. One with regard to what he didn't come to do. And one with regard to what he did come to do. And it meant to cut any potential misunderstandings off at the pass. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit and so on throughout the Beatitudes. He continued in the second person. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And now he speaks in the authoritative first person. I. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The first thing we see is that Jesus had the highest possible view of Scripture. That Jesus had the highest possible view of Scripture. Scripture clearly had priority status to Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear what he did not come to do. Implying that he knew some were thinking that he had come to do away with the law. Abolish is a strong word. It it means to tear down. It means to destroy, dismantle, demolish. Now, this idea that Jesus had the highest regard, the possible view of Scripture, might seem like an obvious point to us. But it wasn't so obvious to some of his hearers. Many who heard Jesus misunderstood what he'd come to do. Some were disturbed by his presumed um, attitude toward the Old Testament. From the very beginning, people had been surprised at his authority that he spoke with. They, they said in Mark 1.27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Wow. What is this? What kind of authority is this? So it was only natural for people to wonder what the connection was between Jesus' authority and the authority of the law of Moses, which they had seen as their supreme authority. The scribes, the teachers of the law, um, the teachers of the law of Moses, they, they uh, committed themselves to, to study it, to interpret it. They... Uh, They claimed they had no authority other than the authorities they quoted. 
But Jesus used a formula that no one had ever used. He says, you have heard, but I say to you. No one had ever spoken that way. Speaking in his own name and in his own authority. You have heard, but I say to you. So what was Jesus in competition with the law? Jesus answers the unasked question, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now understanding what Jesus meant by the law or the prophets, that phrase is key to understanding what Jesus was getting at. The law. It presented a standard which no one could keep and only the Messiah would fulfill. Galatians 3.24 calls it a tutor to lead us to Christ. God's tool to make us aware of our inability to keep his standards or to make ourselves righteous in his sight. We can't do it. The law teaches us that. The law is also known as the Torah or the, book of, the books of Moses uh, the, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now in Psalm 19 we see the characteristics and effects of God's revelation to Moses in these, in these first five books of the Old Testament. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, and it restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it is trustworthy, it makes wise the simple, and so on. It, it basically talks about that we should be in awe of our heavenly father because he had spoken to Moses and given the Pentateuch. We are to, as verse 10 says, delight in it. They are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. There is a huge treasure in the word of God. But the, the word of God to Moses was was for the purpose of showing humankind that they could not work their way to God. They needed the deliverer that was promised. They needed the Savior that was to come. So there was the law. There was also the prophets, on the other hand. The, the, the prophets predicted Christ's birth. They, they predicted his sacrifice. They predicted his reign. Now the term the prophets, though, includes the major prophets, the minor prophets, as well as historical books from Joshua to 2 Kings. The expression, the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets, is a way of saying the entire Old Testament scripture. The whole Old Testament, or any part of it. That's what Jesus is getting at. Notice it's the law, the law from God. The scriptures were given by God, authored by him. And before we go any further, I think it would be helpful uh, to clarify what we mean by, by even the term God's word, because even that has, has called, been called into question, even amongst Christians. What do we mean when we say God's word? Well, let me briefly state this. 
in the scripture there are several ways the term God's word are, is used. There is, the word of, there is the word of God as a person, Jesus Christ. And there is the word of God as speech from God. Uh, seen in statements he makes, decrees. Seen in personal address when he speaks directly to someone. Seen in speech from human lips, such as from the lips of a prophet. And the, the speech from God in written form. Written form. And the written form is known as Scripture. The Bible. This is what we mean when we say God's Word here. We're going to go into more detail next week on that, and especially on the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. But suffice it to say that Jesus had the highest regard for Scripture, and so should we. But sadly, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't always land with Jesus on this one. Many professed Christians have little room for the Word of God. You have no Bible, you have no faith. The faith given once for all is revealed in God's written word. Preachers will read from any book but the word of God, it seems. It is ignored, it is belittled, it is dumbed down, it is watered down in the church. The word of God. Many Christians don't know the word of God. They, they do not read it or live by its words they do not read it alone. They do not read it with their spouse. They do not read it with their family. Um, little wonder that the world has little respect for the Word of God. Many Bible studies are actually focused on what others say about God's Word. With little contact with the actual Word of God itself. And while there is a lot of good to be gained from the insights of, of, from the study of others... That should not be our primary source of contact with the Word of God, but a secondary one. And if we're going to fall in line and, and in step with Jesus on Scripture's preeminence, we need to have the highest view of its absolute authority and sufficiency. Absolute authority of the Word of God means this, that all the words contained in God's written Word are God's words and that disobeying or disbelieving any part of Scripture means disobeying or not believing God. So that you can't be like the second century heretic Marcion and say, I just don't think that applies. I'll cut that out. I don't like the way that sounds. I'll, I'll just say that Jesus didn't say that or mean that. So absolute authority is where you believe that all the words are God's words and that disobeying or not believing any part of Scripture means disobeying or not believing God. Jesus believed that the, the Bible was the supreme authority over all of life. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he is praying for his followers and he is asking the Father to sanctify them in the truth. And he makes this this bold statement, he makes this shocking statement, he makes this uh, foundational statement, thy word is truth. Not thy word contains truth, but 
that your word is truth itself. So absolute authority is a must. The, the other aspect of this is absolute sufficiency. What does that mean? The absolute sufficiency of Scripture means this, that it contains all the words of God that He wanted us to have for salvation and for growth. Everything we need for trusting and obeying God the way He intends. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. It is literally God-breathed. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is sufficient. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it is found in the book. The book. The Bible. The Word of God. It's a good reason to have a good translation of the Bible and not a paraphrase. You're a couple rungs down the ladder when you read a paraphrase because you're reading what someone else read out of an English translation and put into their own words. You want a good Bible from the original languages, translated from the original languages. And there's all sorts of uh, ways of translating, aren't there? Uh, primarily there are uh, the formal equivalency way and the dynamical equivalency way. Formal equivalency is where they translate every word in the originals and put that in your Bible. Dynamic equivalency is where they uh, translate to give the meaning and the thought and they've got to make comments and have a commentary about it in order to do that. And so uh, uh, Bibles that are translated with a dynamic equivalency method are a little bit further from the actual words that Jesus spoke, while they may uh, contain or uh, capture its meaning. Hopefully. Absolute sufficiency. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in his word. It is our only rule for faith and practice, right? The, The Fellowship of Grace Brethren Church's motto has always been... And if you know it, just go with me here. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Do we believe that? The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. But it seems that many contemporary Christians are content to go to non-biblical sources or extra-biblical sources for their foundational beliefs. That we will come up with our theology on books that aren't the Word of God. Maybe that... Talk about the Word of God. We become what is called syncretistic. A little of this, a little of that. Mixed. When God is your authority, His Word is preeminent. When, you're the main, when we're the main attraction, we paraphrase, we proof text, we say, no need to open your Bibles, let me just summarize. Grace is not the church for those who want baby food, praise God. Over the years, grace has been a stalwart in Bible teaching. And not just for knowledge itself, but to to live it. To live it. But grace is not the place for those who want baby food or want someone else to chew your food for you. Grace is the place for any at all levels 
of spiritual growth and depth who want to follow Jesus and believe that God has spoken and that he has spoken truth we need and that truth is found in the word of God which is the very word of God. It doesn't just contain the word of God as some modern day heretics would have you believe. It is the word of God. And if you're a believer, you'll be encouraged to attend to God when you're here. You'll be encouraged to acknowledge him in every area of your life. You'll be encouraged to, to know the word of God and to, to be doers of the word of God. If you're a, 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 not a believer, you don't have faith in Christ, you are always welcome. We love you. We care about you. We want God's best for you. We want to befriend you. And because we care about your eternal destiny and are convinced that only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be rescued from the power and the penalty of sin, you will be called to repentance and faith when you are here, if you're not a believer. To turn from sin to Jesus. To believe. That is the most loving thing we can do. We cannot in good conscience do anything else. So the first thing we see is that Jesus had the highest imaginable view of Scripture. The second thing we see is that the Old Testament finds its completion in Christ. The Old Testament finds its completion in Christ. How? The New Testament and the Old Testament are not in competition. They are not opposed to one another. They fit perfectly in a comprehensive, coordinated way to point to God's remedy for the sin problem. To send a Savior who will be the Lord of all, and it was tied to Christ's purpose in coming to earth. Jesus didn't mince words when he states what he did come to earth to do. Look at the second half of verse uh, 17, Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I came to fulfill. Fulfill what? The law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament scripture. Fulfill is another strong word. It means literally to fill up, to bring to completion, to finish something already started. God was in the process of of finishing the plan of redemption that he had promised Sending Christ to die for sin and fulfill the promise made to send a Savior. Now why should this be important to us? Why should this be so crucial? Because the Old Testament points to Jesus' person and work. Who he is and what he did. See, this is what Jesus is showing in this verse that the Old Testament points to him. He revealed himself as the goal of the Old Testament and therefore its sole authoritative interpreter. The one through whom the Old Testament finds its continuity and significance. What, what specific parts of the Old Testament point to Jesus? First of all, doctrine, teaching. Torah is usually translated law. It means revealed instruction. Torah, revealed instruction. The Old Testament contains all the great biblical doctrines. On God and man and sin and salvation. Jesus fulfilled them in the sense that they were only a partial revelation until he brought it to completion. Until he came upon the scene in his person, in his work and his teaching. 
So doctrine. How about prophecy? Specific predictions of, of the Christ about him. Made hundreds of years before he ever showed up. Jesus said over and over again, the scriptures speak of me. What was predicted came to pass in him. He fulfilled it in this sense. So doctrine and prophecy and the sacrificial system. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 and 12. The, the sacrificial system looked forward to his sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Permanently, you can't do it. That's why they have to do it over and over again. Look at verse 12. But he, that's Jesus, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The work was completed. The work was finished. He made that sacrifice for sins on the cross and the work was done. Sacrificial system. How about the moral standards found in in, in the Old Testament? The moral law of God seen in wisdom literature which presented a behavioral pattern of life in which his life was the perfect example. Laws which only he perfectly obeyed. And there's also the events of history which foreshadowed his life as God's true son such as Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, and such as the Exodus and the Passover, things that foreshadowed Christ's person and work. Jesus fulfills it all. He not only meets all expected uh, predictions and expectations, but he also interprets and applies the Old Testament. See, this is more than obedience. Uh, People will usually explain this verse this way. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law and that he perfectly kept it. That's just one part of the picture. There's so much more than obedience. Christ clarified and completed God's intent and meaning. You see, God, God meant something. He purposed something when he spoke his word. And Christ clarified and completed that intent and meaning. That everything the Old Testament intended to say about God and his purposes find their completion and meaning in Jesus, in his teaching, and in his ministry. What did Jesus say after he rose from the dead? The road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27. He said to them, Oh, Oh, foolish men, these two men that he had met on the road and didn't realize what had really happened and what Jesus really meant. He said, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Jesus expounded the scriptures for them. Jesus, the prince of preachers, opened up his word. So, so in, by way of observation on this verse, you've got this. You've got that, that, uh, that Jesus had the highest imaginable view of scripture. 
And that the Old Testament points to Jesus' person and work, that it fulfills, that Jesus fulfills that. And there is a third thing, and the third thing in this verse is not so obvious. It is this, that the cross, that the cross is always central. The cross is always central. Central in Scripture and, excuse me, central to Christ's purpose in coming to earth. Jesus fulfilling scripture culminated in the cross. The first statement of his public ministry was this. The time is fulfilled. Mark 1.14. His words here in Matthew 5.17. I have come. Make the same point. Again and again, he claims the scriptures bore witness to him. Matthew emphasizes this more than any other gospel writer. By his repeated emphasis on this formula, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The scriptures find their completion in Christ. And the high point was his death on the cross in which, as John Stott put it, the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both priesthood and sacrifice, found its perfect fulfillment. Then the ceremony ceased. And as Calvin rightly commented, it was only the use of them that was abolished. For their meaning was more fully confirmed it was only their use that was abolished their meaning was fully confirmed in christ see the cross of christ is the main attraction in scripture the predominant message now in terms of application there are several things that stand out to me on this this verse matthew 5 17 paul said christ is the end of the law Christ is the end of the law. Was he contradicting what Matthew said? As he quoted Jesus? Christ is the end of the law? No. It doesn't mean that we're now free to disobey it. It means that acceptance with God isn't through obeying or observing the law, but through faith in Christ. Christ is the end of the law. The completion of the law. The fulfillment of the law. That's what it means. God's word was front and center, preeminent in Christ's life and ministry, and should be in ours as well. And if God's word is preeminent in our lives and, and our families and households and this church, several, several things are going to be uh, obvious. First, we're going to put ourselves in subjection to the word of God on a consistent daily basis. See, we put ourselves under its authority, not above it. Which means we don't put anything else above the authority of God's word either. It trumps human reasoning. I love this verse, and I've quoted it often. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13. What better testimony of a church than these words... 1 Thessalonians 2.13 we, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. In 1 Peter chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3 we read these words therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. A baby has no other place to go but to its mommy and puts itself, yields in subjection, really doesn't have much of a choice. And for us, where else could we go? His disciples said to him, Jesus, where else would we go? You have words of life. Where else are we going to go? Jesus has the words of life. What other well are we going to go to but the word of God? To get those words of life. Subjecting ourselves to God's word is more than reading the word, more than hearing the word, more than listening to a sermon, let's say, but is also a matter of listening to God as he speaks through his word. It's not just about gaining info about God. We know that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, love builds up. So when we bring, uh, subject ourselves to the word of God, it should lead to action, appropriate action. And there's a second thing. It, it's obedience, kind of goes right along with subjection. In John chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus said, you, you are my friends. Don't you love that? Don't you want to be called the friend of Jesus? Would you like to be called the friend of Jesus? Well, here's what it will take. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Everybody wants to buddy up to Jesus. I don't know what Jesus they're talking about sometimes. You hear it on TV. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Like you're talking about the Jesus of the Bible? Let's see you obey what he says. First we listen, then we obey. We want to be doers of the word of God. It's our desire as believers. And his word invites a response. He wants us to hear his word and act upon it. Order our lives accordingly. It's a heart response first, and secondly, action. The third thing is that it leads to a greater ability to exercise what is called discernment. Discernment. Hebrews 5.14 speaks of those who because of practice have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. That you know the difference and that you will weed out false teaching. Many today say they believe in Jesus, but not the Bible. Not possible. Not possible. Or they hold other sources in higher esteem. See, there is need to be discerning when someone is claiming to speak for God or wanting to portray God in a certain way. Books with anti-Christian themes abound. Books like The Secret. They lead many to believe that, that they are God. That's a path that will lead someone straight to hell. There are other books like The Shack, what I would call theological fiction, an interesting genre that is very hard to write. But it contains much that is good. A lot of good stuff. But it contains enough error and faulty theology to spoil things. And sometimes these things shape people's beliefs about God more than Scripture. When someone claims something to be in line with the God of the Bible, 
we need to check and recheck to see if it jives with the word of God. If not, we're not being discerning. We're opening the door to anything and being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. See, we have an objective authority with which to teach, to test all subjective ideas. Any ideas about God, you can test by the word of God. If ideas wander from Scripture, they should, there should be red flags. There should not be wholesale acceptance by the Christian community. See, there are few things more important to Christian living than understanding how God chooses to communicate with human beings. The Bible is the standard by which all teachings are to be measured. Period. It's really, really simple. I fear for the body of Christ often because of what I see being accepted out there that is so biblically wrong. Let me give you an example uh, from Scripture about how we might be discerning and how important this is to God. Think about Psalm 119 with me. It is the longest psalm in the Bible, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is the most carefully constructed. It is an acrostic poem with 22 stanzas, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse in each stanza begins with the same corresponding Hebrew letter. Now the impact of this this psalm is huge. People were to place such a high value on God's word that they would actually actively seek for it to shape their character and their conduct. That it was to frame all of their life. It wasn't just a Sunday morning kind of thing or a once or twice a week, if we remember it, kind of a thing. It was a daily, daily kind of thing. Psalm 119 Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as in all riches. Every verse in this psalm is anchored to the word of God. You want to know how preeminent Scripture is meant to be in the life of a believer? Read Psalm 119. There are seven names given to the Word of God in Psalm 119. Law and precepts and testimonies and statutes and commands and rules and word. And it's all about the priority. The primary place of God's Word was to have in their lives and in ours as well. Most of us have a GPS. It's either in your car and obsolete now, or it's, in, it's portable. And, and that GPS it shows you where to go when you're in your car, right? You don't have to know where to go anymore. You just plug, it, plug in the address to the GPS. Now, sometimes the GPS gets it wrong. Sometimes, most of the time, it gets it right. But when you get off course, your GPS talks back to you. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? 
Make a left turn at the next corner. And he keeps saying that until you do it. It's rather annoying, but that is, uh, that is how those things work. And um, it's actually usually right, even though we don't want to admit it, you know. Um, but here's the thing. This is how God's word is, too. It redirects you. It tells you when to turn around. And it's always right. 100% of the time. The sword of the spirit is always right. And that might be uncomfortable. Let me ask you. Is there a book? Is there an author? Is there a teaching? Is there a, 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 a system of thought? That has been allowed to take hold in your life to the point where it trumps scripture. That is now higher than the level of scripture in your life. Now if so, you may not even realize it. That's the nature of deception. So how can you tell? I'll tell you how you can tell. By how fiercely you defend it. By how indignant you get when it's called into question. It's amazing. When we put ourselves under the word of God. We test things. We discern between good and evil. It's amazing what happens. There is this, this fourth thing that happens. It's freedom. It's not slavery. It's freedom. We get enslaved to a lot of different ideas that aren't of God. But the thing that is true in your life when you put yourself under the word of God is that you have freedom you never dreamt possible. The servant of God is the most free. The prisoner of the Lord is the most free. When you're where God wants you to be and doing what he wants you to do, there is so much joy. There is so much freedom. There is so much contentment and, and freedom to serve him. Why was, uh, I want to close with this, why was John, the Apostle John, uh, exiled on the island of Patmos in Revelation? You see it in Revelation. Well, why? He was, he had to be, he'd been really bad and he, he got punished? What, what happened? Why was John on the Isle of Patmos? Well, I'll tell you, the answer to that question is all about Scripture's preeminence. If you look in Revelation, in chapter 1, in verse 2, well, first of all, he starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the thing which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. You want to know why he was on the Isle of Patmos? Because of the word of God. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the Isle called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. The lamb broke the fifth seal. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained. Go over to chapter 12 and verse 17. 
So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now all in Revelation verse, uh, chapter 20 and verse 4. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Because of the word of God. Is my life so closely tied to the word of God that I'd suffer the same fate if circumstances changed in the United States? When you think about it, Jesus was making an, a, a pretty amazing statement in Matthew 5.17. A shocking statement. He isn't just saying, hey, by the way, I'm not going to mess with the scriptures. I am not, as some would mistakenly think, going to do away with the Old Testament. No, no, something much, much more. He says, I'm going to complete it because it's about me. He's making a statement not only about Scripture's preeminence, but his own. God's word is preeminent because Jesus is preeminent. And he wants to have first place in your heart and your life and your family and in this church, in his church, in his church. See, when God's word is preeminent instead of our opinions, we lay our preferences down and we ask, Lord, what do you prefer? Lord, what's your will? What do you want? What would you have to say to us? Because what you have to say is of utmost importance. And so when we do that, we open up our Bibles and we simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's pray. Lord God, that's our heart's desire. Our heart's desire, Lord, is that you would speak and we would listen. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken. And you have spoken truth we need. And that truth is found in your word. And we know, Lord, that what you have to say is of utmost importance. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that that you are good and that you are the author of what you say to us. 